are listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, A few years ago, Amelia and I... uh my wife, uh, with the help of a couple of our kids, were working on building a, a prefab shed for our backyard. And I had dug out a base and put down the gravel and made a sturdy wooden platform uh, out of pressure-treated lumber for it. And we had installed the, the bottom of the shed and had gotten a couple of walls up when Amelia asked that question. Are, are you sure this is level? And... I didn't say this part out loud, but uh, what I was thinking was, okay, I have rehabbed bathrooms and bedrooms and kitchens for you. I've learned how to do plumbing and electrical and floors and walls. And in case you forgot, I worked as a carpenter at seminary when I was in school. The part I said out loud was, yes, it's going to be fine. Probably exactly like that. You can see where this is going, can't you? We got up three walls, and I realized the rafters did not line up right, and they wouldn't connect with the little holes that had been drilled in them and where they were supposed to go in the walls. And I didn't like Amelia's question at that point. I didn't want to hear Amelia's question. 
But the reality is I couldn't avoid Amelia's question because I had to figure out what to do with it. Now, we all have moments like that, right, where we don't like to be questioned about a project or a decision or something that we think that we know what we're doing. And it's one thing when it is just a small project like that and a loved one who's asking you that. But what about if it's something more significant, like your life, and the person who's asking claims to be speaking on behalf of God? It's challenging. It challenges the whole foundation for my life. But the message of the gospel, Jesus' resurrection power, the life and the forgiveness that's available in him, it challenges us so that God can change the direction of our lives. That's threatening. That can be scary. Maybe I don't want to have the foundation for my life challenge. Maybe I like the story that I've written for myself and I don't want it questioned. And there's a part of us that, just like in those smaller things, resents being challenged, that resents the message that's coming to us. And we may end up rejecting the message and maybe rejecting the messenger. So as we get into this story in Luke's gospel, that's what we're going to see, that the message of the gospel brings a challenge that results in rejection that leads to destruction or reception that leads to life. That's going to help us chart through this story together, a challenge, rejection, and reception. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts 4. We're continuing in this series looking at the acts of the Spirit as Luke is helping us understand how the risen Jesus is continuing his mission to save and call people to himself through his church, empowered by the Spirit. We're in Acts chapter 4 on page 22 of your sermon journals or on page 1083 of those black Bibles in front of you. And we're continuing a story. We really started a couple of weeks ago where Peter and John were walking up to the temple and in the power of Jesus' name, Peter heals this man who has been lame from birth. And as you can imagine, that draws a crowd. And taking advantage of that, Peter starts preaching, sharing the gospel message with them. And he basically says, your sins killed Jesus, took him to the cross, but God has raised him up. And Jesus, faith in Jesus, has made this man whole again. And it's an illustration, it's an example that God is calling all people everywhere to turn from sin and to find life and wholeness and rescue in Jesus. And as Peter are preaching, some people are listening and responding and receiving that message and others are threatened. And that's where we pick up the story today. The message of the gospel brings challenge. Look in verses 1 and 2. As they, as Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. It's, it's this, it sounds like that in the Greek. It's like they sat on them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, notice, first of all, it says that they were annoyed. Maybe in your translation it says they were disturbed. Why? Because they're preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, and, and we'll talk specifically about why that's a problem in a few minutes. But they bring Peter and John in, and they sit them down, and in verse 7, they challenge them with this question. By what power or by what name 
Did you do this thing? And that's the opening that leads into Peter's response, this key answer starting in verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, this man, uh, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there's salvation found in no one else, for there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Now here's what's going on. Peter is saying this, every human has a foundation, has a bottom line, has a cornerstone that our lives are built on. It, it gives meaning to life. It becomes the source of our identity and our security, our confidence, our decision-making. And for example, you know, your foundation, your cornerstone could be your education, could be your career, could be your family, it could be your success, your accomplishments, it could be a political cause. There's any number of things, but it gives you confidence, it, it gives you the ability to feel good about yourself, to, to give you wisdom in life. It becomes the basis on which you decide who are the good people and who are the bad people. My brother was a pastor at a small country church before he passed away. And last weekend, my wife Amelia and I went down to Shelbyville to the church. They were having a church supper. Any of you ever been at a church supper in a country church or in a VFW hall? Right? The, the whole community comes out. It's, it's a huge deal, right? It's, uh, it, these, these are hardworking, salt-of-the-earth, uh, family-oriented, moral people, right? They're, they're not necessarily sophisticated. They, they may not have a lot of education. Their foundation, their, their confidence, their identity in life is, I'm a decent person. I work hard. I do what's right. I follow the rules. I look out for me and mine. Now, if you go to a community gathering a little closer to here, maybe, say, in Broad Ripple, you're going to find different people. There's not going to be gun racks on the back of the pickup trucks because there won't be pickup trucks, and there probably won't be gun racks, right? You're going to find people driving Priuses and eating in outdoor cafes. They're sophisticated. They're, they're worldly. They're educated. They talk about philosophy. That's their foundation. That's their identity. Art and poetry and high culture. And one group says, you know, what's wrong with the world is there aren't more moral, upstanding, salt-of-the-earth people like us. And the other group says, you know, what's wrong with the world is there aren't more worldly, sophisticated, open-minded people like me. And it's a challenge, the gospel, for all of us. For these religious leaders, these Sadducees and Pharisees and the scribes and all of them, the teaching of the resurrection, the thing that annoyed them, was a challenge to their understanding about how God was going to work in the world. The Sadducees, we would say, were oh, kind of secular and uh, liberal in terms of their understanding of the Bible. They didn't believe in a literal resurrection. They thought that this life was all there was, and the best thing to do was to be as good as you can in this life because that's it. The others, the teachers of the law, the scribes, they were more biblically conservative. They were traditional and moral, and they rejected the idea of Jesus as the center of the resurrection because they thought that's just going to happen at the end of the age. 
a resurrection focused on one particular person in the middle of the story? It, it offends everyone who's hearing this, who has an idea of the way God is going to work. And, and he's going to send a Messiah, but not that one. That can't be the way that God is working in the world. He's not the Messiah we wanted or expected. And the gospel is a challenge for just about all of us in terms of how we think God works and what he wants. It's, it's a challenge for those of us who think maybe, you know, God wants me to be a good person and to do good and to stop doing bad things. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, he's not calling me necessarily, you know, to humility and self-sacrifice and loving enemies. It's a challenge maybe for this idea of uh, expressive individualism, which Joey did this deep dive on yesterday, the idea that, you know, it, the main thing is just being true to myself and listening to my heart and, and living out my own truth. Or the idea of moral progressivism, the idea that, you know, we're getting better and better all the time. And, and if you hear people or you think or use the language like, well, that's like you're on the wrong side of history, Right? Like, that's, that's the Star Trek universe. The world is just going to keep getting better, and we're going to finally get rid of bigotry and pride and anger and lust and jealousy through science and through our own personal improvement. Whatever it is for you, whatever is your philosophy, whatever is the cornerstone of your life, it becomes your wisdom, your confidence, your idea of your own righteousness and goodness, and the gospel of Jesus points at your cornerstone and says, it's inadequate. It, it, it's not going to be able to stand the weight of what you're trying to build on it. If you're a moral person, God comes to the conservative, the gospel comes to the conservative and says, you're moral, but do you realize that before God, you're no more righteous than the most secular liberal that you look down on. But if you believe in Jesus, if your identity is based on his work, him living the life that you should have lived and taking the penalty that your sins deserve, you will be righteous before God. And the gospel comes to the liberal and says, you know, before God, you're no wiser than the most uneducated conservative that you tend to look down on. It doesn't matter that you're sophisticated and worldly, but by humbling yourself under God's wisdom, you can actually be wise and be enlightened and have real understanding. The message of the gospel is never about helping us build a better life on our own foundations. It's about tearing up our foundation and giving you a new one because every foundation except what Jesus has done for you will not support the life that you are trying to build on it. And it does not solve the real problem that we all have. Because the gospel says we are all sinful, we are all guilty, and we are all separated from God, and we cannot save ourselves. It challenges everyone. It challenges every foundation. And we respond either with rejection that leads to destruction or with reception that leads to life. And that happens wherever the gospel is preached and wherever this message goes out. The message of the gospel offends us by saying you need to be saved and you can't get there yourself. That's the second movement here that we see that the message 
of the gospel brings rejection. I mean, that makes sense, right? Because if somebody tells you you're not good enough and you don't know what you're talking about, we, we put up defensive walls against that. Nobody likes to hear that. And, and we saw those first signs of rejection back in verses 1 and 2. The, the power brokers, the priests, the captain of the temple, the Sadducees come on them greatly annoyed because they're teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection in Jesus. They're disturbed and unhappy that these, first of all, these outsiders have come onto their turf and taken on themselves the authority to teach people. Who, who gave you the right? That's what they're asking in verse 7. By what power or authority or name did you do this? What gives you the right to think that you can come in here and tell us how God is supposed to be working? I mean, this is our job. Do you understand that? Like, we know how this works. And it's not what you guys are saying. And, and trouble comes because of proclaiming healing Jesus' name is taking focus away from them and what they're doing. And it's putting it on Jesus. It's challenging the foundation, you see, of their reputation and their power and their authority and their preeminence and their understanding of God. And, and I think in that question, by what authority do you do this, is meant to make us think back to when Jesus came into that same temple, remember, and cleansed it from the money changers and drove them out because they said, you're, you're ruining, you're messing up what the temple is supposed to be about. And in a way, Jesus' act, we could say, is almost a preparation for this because the temple is now fulfilling the role that it's supposed to have as the place where God's deliverance, where God's salvation is proclaimed and experienced. That's what Peter's getting at back in verse 11, where he's quoting Psalm 118. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone. Peter is, is saying you have rejected the one foundation you should have been building on, which is Jesus. But they have despised him. But that doesn't negate the fact that he's still the foundation. That's why he goes on to say there's salvation in no one else because there's no other name given under heaven by which we can be saved. It's a, it's a challenge to them. It's a challenge to all of us. What do I do with that? So they don't know what to do with it, so they call a timeout and they get a quick sideline huddle together in verse 16. What are we going to do with these guys? A notable sign has been performed for them. It's evident to everyone. We can't deny it. So let us instead warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Now again, you might hear an echo here back to when Peter first preached in chapter 2 when he's proclaiming the same message that Jesus is the Savior and the people are cut to the heart and they cry out, what do we do? Here these people are crying out, what do we do with these men? Not what do I do with the message? How can I shut them up so I don't have to wrestle with what they're saying to me? They see that Jesus is a threat 
to the foundation of their lives. Because if he is the risen Savior, I have to reorder everything in my life around him. Jesus threatens my control, my identity, the the script that I've written for myself, the message that I want to believe about me, my own projects for glorifying myself and, and being my own savior. I mean, we don't talk about it that way, but that's kind of what we're saying when we tell ourselves, you know, God just wants me to try and be a better person and not sin so much. And we all kind of end up in the same place. The gospel message that is so offensive to all of us is that Jesus is the only source of life. So opposition to him leads to destruction and death. That's what's happening in verses 18 and 19. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Do you hear what Peter's saying here? The message of the gospel brings a challenge, and we have to decide what we're going to do with it. If you reject Jesus and the good news of his rescue... You are in opposition to God. You're on the opposite team. You are opposed to God because you've rejected the only name that has been given by which we can be reconciled to him. And you need to seriously consider what that means for what you're building your life on. It means for followers of Jesus, though, that we can expect opposition Because if we're faithfully living out and proclaiming this message, there's going to be resentment. There's going to be rejection. There's going to be hostility. There may be suffering. But don't let it be for being offensive yourself. The the message is the offense. Can, Can we tell the difference between being persecuted because we're telling people there's no life outside the name of Jesus and just being persecuted because we're out of step with the larger culture and we're upset because it's not going the direction we want it to go. See, standing up for Jesus means taking a stand, yes, but what are you taking a stand on? The moral implications of the gospel or the gospel itself? Because those are two different things. Peter and all the examples that we have are calling people to come and find life in Jesus and then let Jesus figure out how to straighten out their lives. The message is not straighten out your life and we're angry and frustrated that you're not living like you ought to be living. That's not the gospel. People keep persecuting me because I'm a Christian. Are you sure it's because you're a Christian? Or maybe it's because the way we're living out our Christian faith. We're not calling people to be better and to stop sinning. We're calling people to Jesus and to find life in him. That message is offensive enough in itself if we just let it stand for its own. That message brings rejection. But the message of the gospel also brings a reception. It brings a reception that leads to life. 
Remember back in verse 12, Peter said again, there's salvation found in no one else because there's no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. This is the third time Peter has now preached and invited people to experience the new life and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. In chapter 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Last chapter, in chapter 3, the the message that got him in trouble, repent then and turn back that your sins may be blotted out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. To repent simply means to have a change of mind that leads to a a change of direction in my life. It, It means I'm agreeing with God that I'm the problem and that only he can forgive and save me. And to receive the forgiveness for all of that wrong and his new life inside of me by his spirit. That's why Jesus has to tear up all our old foundations. Because there's nothing that we could ever do that can produce that for ourselves. The message of of this gospel brings a receptiveness that leads to life. Look Look at what that looks like, the impact in verse 13. When the leaders saw the boldness, the confidence of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And you might, if you're in the habit of underlining or highlighting things, this last part of verse 13 is, oh, this is one I keep coming back to. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. They're in front of the the Supreme Court and Congress and the President and the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and they're not threatened. They have literally a supernatural confidence because they know that they have an authority and a power that is greater than all the power that's on display in front of them. They're, They're not unintelligent. They're just uneducated, common people. They're lay persons like most of us. They haven't been to seminary. They don't have advanced degrees. And the point is you don't need those things to be used by God to spread the message. You're telling people what God has done in your life and the rescue and the salvation that he's brought to you. And what really matters is this. They saw that they had been with Jesus. Now that does not mean I don't think that they recognize him like, oh yeah, you guys were hanging around the edge of that trial we had for Jesus a couple of months ago. No, I, I think the point is their association with Jesus explains this ability. Those guys look like Jesus. They sound like Jesus because they've been with him. Not just because they walked with him for three years and they heard all this stuff and now they're able to repeat it. But Jesus is living in them and through them and their lives look like Jesus. Is there evidence in our lives of Jesus' power and Jesus' transformation that people can't explain away? When people hear us, would they somehow be able to say, that sounds a lot like what Jesus would say. That's what it means to be with Jesus and to be identified with him. 
I mean, in verses 21 and 22, in this exact example, they can't punish them because the people were all praising God for what had happened for the man on whom this sign of healing, the obvious transformation in this guy's life, is right before them. Is there evidence in our lives that we've been with Jesus in a way that makes a difference in how we live? Is, is there love? Is there forgiveness? Is there patience and peace and joy and humility and kindness that isn't just based on your personality? But it's because you've been with Jesus and his spirit has been working to make you look more and more like the one that you're following. Because God's people follow him in the power of his spirit. It changes our lives. It changes our priorities. We reach out to others with the message and the hope of the gospel so that there's life that flows out in terms of expansion too. Back in verse 4, did you catch this tiny little summary statement? Another one that Luke gives us here. Many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now, whether that's 5,000 more people or whether now the whole total of the disciples is around 5,000, in either case, it's an amazing expansion. Man, one of the things that's been a blessing to me and my wife Amelia is through Faith's partnership with ministries like Arab Baptist Theological Seminary, we've gotten to hear and experience some of the amazing stories of what God is doing as people are following him in places like Lebanon, where... Christians are are taking meals and offering medical help and volunteering to educate the children of Syrian Muslim refugees. Syria was the enemy nation of Lebanon. And and these Muslims are now coming here totally vulnerable and helpless. And Christians have stepped into that and loved them and cared for them. And, And it's led to questions like, you're Christians, we're Muslims, why are you doing this? That's not how the world works, right? And it's given an opportunity to share the message of God's love and forgiveness and the gospel of Jesus. And as a result, new churches are springing up. We heard of a church of 50 or 60 people, that, of former Muslims who had come to faith in Christ because of outreach of Christians in the wake of the explosion in the port area and Christians loving their neighbors and serving them. Stories of churches that had 150 people who now have 350 people because of Muslims coming to faith in Christ through the love and the witness of their Christian neighbors. I mean, sometimes maybe we hesitate to share the message because we doubt, will anyone really receive it? I I, I keep planting seeds, I keep sharing the message, and it doesn't seem like much is happening. It seems like God isn't moving in spectacular ways. But wherever the gospel is preached faithfully, people respond. The ground may be harder in a particular context. There may be weeds and stones in that image that have to be plowed up, and it may take longer. But God is still at work. Because the message of the gospel always brings rejection and reception. And in Acts, we're going to see this pattern over and over again. This is, this is the first sign of this rhythm that we're going to see, that the church grows as God's people faithfully live out and preach the message in the face of opposition and suffering. And the opposition is going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. 
But what can we as followers of Jesus do except in verses 19 and 20? We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. How can we not tell people about Jesus because of who he is and what he's done? Even if it means opposition and suffering, even if it means some people reject the message. Well, that shed that uh, I was trying to build was, uh, it was totally out of square and out of plumb. And, uh, and I had to decide what to do about it. Uh, you know, one option that I seriously considered was just, you know, muttering under my breath and complaining about this crummy shed they sold me and why can't they sell good products anymore? I thought, you know, maybe I could shim up the, the low side of this shed and get some extra braces and screws, you know, and, and force the rafters to fit. Uh, I had to ultimately admit that my foundation was no good. And it wasn't going to get me where I needed to go. So I had to disassemble the shed, remove the building pad that I had constructed, dig the gravel out, and start off with the right foundation. And there is kind of a picture there of what Jesus is calling us to and what it means to know and follow him. Because following Jesus means surrendering control to him. Control over my life, banking my whole existence on his insistence that we can only have life, we can only have security by giving up control and following him. All our old comfortable securities, all our old foundations are torn up. We may be called to expose ourselves to, to harm, to threat, to danger, to rejection for insisting that Jesus is the only way. It, it may be a threat to our security, our identity as, you know, competent, I know how to do this kind of people because Jesus says in his kingdom, the last shall be first and the least shall be the greatest and the servant is the one that's the greatest in the kingdom. Message of the gospel challenges our, you know, our, our love of finding identity and belonging to some kind of a tribe so that I can know who's in the inside that I love and who's on the outside that I hate. Because the gospel demolishes all those walls and sends us out to the people that we would tend not to love and not to choose, to eat with tax collectors and to touch lepers, to embrace in friendship the people that are shunned by others, to be willing to be rejected by not being in the in crowd. But there's salvation and life in no other name. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the hope of the gospel. And believe it or not, the world in which we live is actually crying out for an alternative to all the unstable foundations of money and status and looks and career and family and politics and cultural touchstones and being good enough and listening to our hearts. It may not seem like that's what our world is crying out for, but it is. Because God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in him. People made in God's image are desperate, desperate for real hope, real life, real community, real love, real security. And the only real alternative offered to the world is the message of the gospel and the foundation of Jesus Christ. 
Will the foundation of my life bear the weight of all that I'm trying to build on it? Does it give me real purpose, security, hope? Does it lead me to experience real life? It does if your foundation is Jesus. Jesus, in the end, is the only foundation that lasts and the only hope that really matters. Let's pray.